Good morning to everybody who's online as well. We are so glad that you're joining us. Welcome to Afraid of Foursquare. If this is your first time here, which I'm not sure who's new and who's not, because I'm still I see a lot of faces that I know, uh, but for those of you who are joining us for the first time, my name is Pastor Blake, and I'm just so glad that you're here with us. Before we jump into the Word, I wanted to um, give um, a couple announcements, a couple pieces of news. The first one's kind of weighty. Uh, as many of you may have already heard, um, a, a loved one, a dear one, a member of our church has gone to be with Jesus this past week, Velda Schallenberger. Uh, went to be home with Jesus in this last week, and I did not have the privilege to meet her, uh, but I have just heard from so many people how much joy she brought to, to others' lives. And so um, the family would like uh, me to invite you to a celebration of life that is happening here on Tuesday at 11 a.m., and uh, for those of you who can't make it or if you're staying home and you knew Velda, we're going to live stream the service as well so you can be a part of it. And it'll be found on our YouTube channel. You can go and watch there. And so, uh, yeah, the family would just like to uh, extend an invitation to come and celebrate her life with us here. Pastor Rory will be officiating uh, the service. And so um, I'll be here as well and I'll get to meet some of the family and, and uh, we're going to celebrate Velda together. Uh, another thing I wanted to say before we get started is I want to recognize a few people here who are going to hate me for doing this. Uh, they don't ever ask for recognition, but they deserve recognition. And they deserve honor. And um, those people, there's, there's a few members of council that I want to highlight. Uh, Jethro and Matt and Peter, um, these guys are here all the time at the church uh, just pouring in to this facility and fixing things around here. And this past week, Dan uh, Phillips helped repair our roof on the, on the building. Uh, there were some bare spots, and he helped patch them up and, uh, just to get ready for some bad weather. And he did that all, all on his own. Rich Bickle was here. Uh, he's been here in the sanctuary helping uh, put together some sound stuff on stage. And these guys are amazing. We have some, some people at our church that love Jesus and love the church, and they give their time and their resources and their talents uh, and invest into this church. And so can we just say thank you to these guys? We appreciate you. We appreciate you so much. Thank you guys so much. Well, this morning we're going to talk about godly wisdom. And uh, if, you're, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 3? We will be in James chapter 3, verse 13. And uh, a little history about the book of James. James uh, is considered wisdom literature. In fact, James is, is kind of considered the Proverbs of the New Testament, if you will. It's wisdom literature. James is very practical. He has a lot of things to say that applies to us today, to our lives that we can put into practice in our Christian faith. And um, one of the main ideas that James brings uh, to his book is that we are not just to be hearers of the word. We're supposed to be doers of the word. We're supposed to practice what we read in scripture. And James highlights this main theme over and over again throughout his book. Uh, but it's considered wisdom literature. And we are going to talk today about wisdom. I feel like it's really important in a society. We live in a society, whether you like it or not, whether you see it or not, we live in a culture that passes personal opinions as facts. And we hear it from every side of the spectrum. Everybody has an opinion that they try to pass off as fact. And so 
as we live our lives and as we're trying to live a life that's devoted to Jesus, it's very important that we understand uh, who, who, we, uh, who, who we put our trust in. Whose wisdom do we listen to? Whose advice do we listen to? And I'm going to argue this morning, I'm going to offer this morning that God is the only one whose advice is, is worthy to take and whose word we should be hearing hearing from, uh, but this morning I felt like it was important to talk about the wisdom of God because uh, we have to learn how to hear God's voice and understand God's heart in order to live our lives in a way that honors Jesus. And so uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. Here we go. James says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from heaven. Here James goes off again about his main theme, that we are to be doers of the word, not simply hearers of the word. He said, if you think you are wise, then prove it. Let me see it in your actions. Let me see it in your lifestyle. He wants us to live out what we read in scripture. Verse 14, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. In this scripture here, James is contrasting two different types of wisdom. He's talking about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Well, what is wisdom, and how is it different from knowledge? Uh, the dictionary defines knowledge as information that we gain through experiences, reasoning, or when we become familiar with something, when we're acquainted to something. When you experience something or become familiar with something, you become knowledgeable about that subject. For instance, if you like to work on cars, the more you work on cars, the more knowledgeable you become about that subject. Uh, the, more, uh, the more you, um, the, if you're an electrician, I've been changing all the outlets in my house and all the light fixtures in my house for the last couple weeks, and there's, uh, there's well over, I don't know, 60 of them? In our, there's over 60 of them in our house. I've been, I've been electrocuted about 10 times <laughs> in the last couple weeks, and, and this experience that I'm gaining through replacing outlets has given me knowledge about which wires not to touch together when I'm holding the outlet, right? The more and more experience I have with this, the more knowledgeable I become. But wisdom is the practical application of that knowledge, right? So I'm becoming knowledgeable about what wires not to touch, but wisdom is knowing not to touch that black wire and not to touch it with the other wire. <laughs> wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, what is right, or lasting. Let me, by show of hands, who in this room is qualified to determine what is true, what is right, and what is lasting? Oh, we have a few people in the room. I would argue 
that there's no, there's no one but God. I, I believe that if God lives inside of you, he, he makes you into his image and he, he gives you the ability by walking with him to, to determine those things. But without God, God is the only one who can determine what is true, what is right, and what is lasting. And we can read the Bible every day and inquire, acquire lots of knowledge about God and the history of Israel and Jesus, uh, but wisdom in turn acts properly upon that knowledge. Wisdom is the fitting application of that knowledge. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments, but wisdom obeys them. Knowledge learns about Jesus, but wisdom loves Jesus. It's the application of that knowledge. But why should we trust in God? What makes him qualified to determine what is right for our lives, to, to determine what is true for our lives? How do I know that God has my best interests in mind? How can I trust in God's plan and his wisdom for my life? Before I go on to talk about these two different types of wisdom that James is talking about, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, I want to offer two statements to you that I believe are going to provide lenses for which we read the scripture, in which we talk about uh, James. And the first statement that I'd like to offer you is God is for God. God is for God. We're going to get to what that means in just a minute. The second statement is that God designed the earth to operate for his glory and for our good. The first statement, God is for God. What does this statement mean? It's really simple. That it is not about you. God wants to free you from the pressure of determining what is right for your life. It is a weighty thing to carry, to, to try to determine on your own what is truth, what is right, what is lasting. It is a weighty thing. And God wants to free you from the responsibility. He wants to free you from the pressure of having to determine what's right because he has already determined it. God is for God. This is hard to understand because we want everything to be about us, don't we? When we, want, we want everything to be about us. When I come home from the office during the week and I'm tired and I see that Christina needs help picking up around the house or taking care of the kids, I have to combat the natural tendency to want to just take care of me and let her deal with it because I want things to be about me. Sometimes I, I fail at that and she, she reminds me that I need to step up to the plate a little bit. Thank you, God, for my wife. I have to combat that natural tendency to just make it all about me. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm in my car and somebody's in front of me and for goodness sake, they're driving the speed limit. My goodness, who drives exactly 25 miles an hour? Everybody in here knows that you're supposed to drive, you know, at least five or six miles over the speed limit, right? Come on, if you're honest, you admit you do this too. Maybe there's a few of you who drive exactly the speed limit and you're the ones who drive me bonkers when I'm on the road because they're in front of me, they're driving the speed limit, and I'm like, don't, doesn't this person in front of me know that I have, they're wasting my precious time? I have someplace I gotta get to. I got things I've gotta do. What are they doing following the, the, the law, obeying the speed limit? This is ridiculous. I wanna make it all about me. We think highly of ourselves. And this Western culture that we live in, it only reinforces this idea. Every commercial I see makes it all about me and all about my happiness. You need this product. You need, you need this in your life to make you happy. You need, to, you need to watch these things. You need to do this to make you happy. It's all about me. But the Bible paints a very different picture. Did you know that we can still read the Bible and, and still believe that everything is about us, that everything's about me? 
Surely we, we, can, we can convince ourselves God wants me to be happy because when I'm happy, it makes God look good, right? So God wants me to be happy because when I'm happy, he looks good. But scripture proves that God is for God, that he is not concerned with your happiness. He is concerned with bringing himself glory. Now that's kind of an arrogant statement, but I wanna, we're going we're gonna to come back to that in just a minute. But God is more concerned about bringing himself glory, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason for that. Psalms 23 is a great example in scripture about how God is for God. Psalms 23 verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. See, it's all about me. God is all about me. Psalms makes it very clear that God is concerned about me. But the, the text goes on to say this. He guides me along right paths for what? His namesake. He guides me for his namesake, for his glory. He guides you for his glory. He gives you wisdom to bring himself glory. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He was a reluctant convert. C.S. Lewis was an agnostic before he came to the faith. And he, he said at one point that every time he read the Psalms, it sounded like God was begging for compliments. God was saying, worship me, delight in me, praise me. But later, C.S. Lewis would go on to write this. He would, C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. I went to Dry Falls for the first time uh, this last week and I didn't know we actually had a view here. It's, it was beautiful. I was... I was amazed. I, I, I thought it all just looked like this everywhere, everywhere around here. And I got to Dry Falls, and the next day I took my family there. But when I was there alone, I, I drove up to that, that visitor center, the parking lot, and I just went, wow, this is beautiful. Even though I was alone, I still had to say out loud, wow, this is beautiful. Because I believe that when you say it out loud, C.S. Lewis was right. When you express it, it completes the enjoyment. When I said it out loud, it completed the, wow, this is beautiful. I can't believe that this is here. I'm so excited to take people here. I'm going to take my family here tomorrow. God, he's not begging for compliments. He's trying to give you the one thing that you need to live a life of freedom and joy, and that's to not be all about yourself. That's to be all about him. In order to live a, true, a life of true freedom and, and true joy, the fullness of joy, it can't be about you. It has to be about him. It has to be about somebody else. He's trying in his wisdom to give you what you need to live a life of completeness. Let me give you an example of this. If I come home from the office and I open up the door and everything has to be about me, I, I expect that the laundry's done, that dinner is cooked, that the kids are bathed, that they're ready for bed. Ladies, this is metaphorical, okay? <laughs> I can feel the steam coming out of, your, out of your ears. This is metaphorical. I don't actually do this, okay? But if I did, if I came home and I, and I made it all about me, I expect this to happen, this to happen. I had all these expectations. I'm not free to love my wife and love my kids in the way that God wants me to because I have to meet my needs first. I have all these expectations that need to be met. 
But if I'm more concerned about pleasing my God and loving my wife and loving my kids, I don't have any expectations. I'm free to love them because it's not about me. It's about somebody else. This is what God is trying to do. He's trying to make it not about you and what you think is best for your life, but to take the pressure off of you to determine what is right for your life, what is good, what is lasting, what is true, so that he can determine it for your life. Because when you give the authority and you give that wisdom that, that, to somebody else, you're free to live a more full life. Does that make sense? God is for God, and that sets me free to not be the point and means that all the commandments of God, everything in Scripture, all the promises of God, they can be trusted. He has established them ultimately for my benefit so that I can live a full life. He gets the glory, but it's for my good. Amen? Amen. Which leads me to the second statement that I said. God is for God, and the second statement is God designed the earth to operate for his glory and for our good. If you want to know about wisdom, read the book of excuse me, read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's all about wisdom and Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isn't that opposite of what our culture tells us? That that if you are wise, you don't need help. You can do it on your own. If you're, our, our culture will tell us that if, if, if you're wise, if you're smart, if you're knowledgeable, you can do it on your own. You don't need anybody else. Try to make it on your own. We praise people who make it on their own, who make something of themselves all by, them, all by themselves. But scripture tells us that a wise man heeds wisdom and instruction. He listens to it. And a fool despises those things. Everyone has their own definition of wisdom. Educators, Philosophers, even Hollywood would give us a definition of wisdom, but the Bible here has a definition of its own. You know what the Bible says wisdom is? Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've always kind of wrestled with this idea of what the fear of the Lord is supposed to mean because um, uh, just that statement is, why should I fear the Lord? Why, why 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 should I come to the Lord with fear and trembling? But my former pastor described it this way, and it really helped me understand the fear of the Lord. He, just, he compared the fear of the Lord to swimming in the ocean. I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of, uh, we went to the beach one time, and I think everybody has probably had this experience at one point in their life, but I went to the ocean, and I was playing in the water and in the waves, and I'm not paying attention to what's happening at the sea, right? So I turned my back to the ocean at one point and looked at the beach, and can you guess what happened? Some rogue wig came up behind me and swept me off my feet and I hit the sand and I'm covered in, in salt water and I'm, I'm eating sand and I'm inhaling salt water and I, and I had suddenly a healthy respect, a healthy fear of the ocean to know that you can't turn your back on the ocean because it's powerful. It's beautiful, yes, but it is powerful. So what happened the next time I went to the ocean? I didn't do that. I kept my eyes on the water. I can admire the ocean, I can admire its beauty, but I can also recognize its power and that it can take me down if it wants to. And this is the way that we approach God. We approach God with this, with this reverence, with this awe, with this he's so majestic, he's beautiful, he's the creator of the earth, but we also approach God with this 
with this wonder and with this respect, knowing that God has power, he has authority, and I can approach him with reverence, but with fear and trembling. I can approach him acknowledging his beauty and all the things that he's done, but I have to know that he has power. The beginning of all wisdom and understanding is this, that God has designed the world and knows the best way to live life, so we should trust him. Did you catch that? God designed the world. He knows how it works. He knows how it operates. He knows the consequences of certain choices, of certain actions. When we decide to go down a certain path, God knows where that's going to ultimately lead. He made the earth to function the way that it does. So when we are asking for wisdom, when, we're knowing, when we need to know what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's lasting, we can come to God, the creator of all things, and ask him, God, how did you design this to play out? Which way should I go? God provides all the wisdom that we need. So with these two lenses in place, I want to read James again with those two statements in mind, that God is for God. He, it's God God wants to bring himself glory to free you from the pressure of determining what is right, what is true, and what is lasting, but also that God designed the earth for his glory and for my benefit. So James 3, here it is again. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, Don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's peace-loving. It's gentle at times. It's willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Did you catch that? In verse 14, there are two kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom that comes from hell. It's worldly wisdom, and it comes from hell. Uh, James says, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There is a wisdom that comes from hell, and the danger is that we can think that we are wise. We can think that we have it figured out, and other people can tell us that we are wise, but the reality may be that we may be relying on our own wisdom, and it might be unspiritual or even demonic, coming from hell. We don't talk about the devil a lot, which is for the most part, a good thing because we don't want to give him any attention that he doesn't deserve. We, give, we make Jesus famous, but we need to realize that there's an enemy of God and there's an enemy of God's people. And you know what? The enemy is okay with you reading your Bible. He's okay when you wake up at 6 a.m. and chapter after chapter pour over scripture. That doesn't bother him. What bothers him is when you begin to believe and you begin to live out and you become a doer of the word. And you begin, to put it, you begin to put into practice the things in Scripture that you're reading. That's where the enemy starts to have a problem. And the devil has been distorting the wisdom of God since the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit, because if they do, they will die. And the serpent came to Eve 
and gave her his counsel. And he said, did God really say that? No, 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 no. You won't die. You're going to be like God. Was he right? In a way, Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit and they had a knowledge of good and evil. What they didn't understand is they were already like God. They had been created in the image of God. They were already like him. But now they have the knowledge of good and evil and now they are going to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They took control in that moment and said, God, I don't trust that you know what's right for my life. I don't trust that you have the all-encompassing wisdom that I need for my life. Instead, I'm going to determine in this moment what I need. And I believe that this is the best option for me. And she ate of the fruit. And from that moment on, she had the pressure of deciding for herself what wisdom is, what is true and right and lasting. James says that there are, there's a wisdom that doesn't come from God. It's worldly wisdom that comes from hell. Proverbs 12, 15, a famous verse, says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. <clears throat> worldly wisdom comes from hell. The second thing about worldly wisdom is that worldly wisdom is motivated by self-centered ambition. The wisdom of the world measures everything by how it affects me, how it affects you. What is best for my life? Just like Eve did, what's best for me? How does this affect me? How can I best advance myself, promote myself, exalt myself, put myself higher? This is the core of the American dream, isn't it? How can I promote myself? How can I advance? How can I climb that ladder? How can I make it on my own? Promote yourself. Advance yourself. Put yourself forward. But the gospel says, deny yourself. Take a seat. Put yourself at the lowest of the totem pole. Deny yourself. And this right here, this is the core conflict in marriages. And even friendships and churches What's best for me? How do I benefit from this situation? Marriages, they struggle the most when neither person is willing to sacrifice for the other. They're not thinking about the other person. They're thinking, what's best for me? How do I advance myself? How do I win this argument? They're both looking out for themselves, expecting the others to serve them. People leave churches all the time because they don't feel recognized or they don't feel heard or they don't feel like anybody is about them. They have an issue with, uh, there, there's people that leave the church over who gets to sing the solo in this year's Christmas song or the color of the carpet or the color of the walls, whatever it is. It's not about, it, it's not about them, so they leave. It's this wisdom that's motivated by self-centered ambition. And James, he also mentions being bitterly jealous or envious and constantly looking at how you compare with others around you. And I've wrestled with this all my life. Before I got married, I had about four or five roommates and every single one of them were talented musicians. They've all gone on to make music. They're on Spotify. They've got albums out. They're all talented musicians. And uh, I'm not going to lie, it made for some really great jam sessions sometimes when we were together. But we were always, there was kind of this undercurrent of comparison Who's better at this? Who can play the guitar better? Who can sing better? I'm constantly comparing myself to other people. And it steals your joy, doesn't it? When you compare yourself to other people. We look at Instagram. I look at my friend's Instagram. So maybe many of you might not have an Instagram. Maybe you have a Facebook. But you look at your friend's Facebook and, and sometimes I think to myself, oh, I wish I could travel there. 
Oh, it's their anniversary. I wish my wife said those things about me. And she does. I wish I, wish I had that life. I wish my kids were that perfect. Her, her kids never, never do anything bad. They're always smiling in all of their pictures. There's this comparison that takes place and it steals our joy. <clears throat> I love what Oscar Wilde wrote. He said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. God wants us to be content with our lives and not compare ourselves with other people. It's a wisdom that is motivated by self-centered ambition when you do that. And the last thing about worldly wisdom is that worldly wisdom always results in evil and disorder. That's what James says. Self-centered ambition results in marriages that are marked by disorder and evil. Self-centered ambition results in churches that are marked by disorder and evil. This kind of wisdom, it produces anger, bitterness, resentment, strife, divorce, conflict. That's what comes from worldly wisdom. But James says that there's another way. There's a different kind of wisdom. And that wisdom is godly wisdom. It's relying on him. Godly wisdom, number one, comes from heaven. If we return to the first chapter of James, in verse five, he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What are we supposed to do if we lack wisdom? We're supposed to ask. Ask God for it. There's a wisdom that can't be found in intellectual knowledge or practical experience. It only comes from God. There's a wisdom, a divine supernatural wisdom that can only be found from being on your face before God and calling out to him. And it's a totally different way to think. It's not manufactured by man. And there's this, the, the Bible paints this, uh, this picture of somebody who is desperate for wisdom, who's crying out to wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter two, verse one through six, it says, I love this. I love the earnesty of this. It says, my son, if you will receive my word and tre treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, if, you're, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding." It's this picture of, I would, God, I'm, I'm crying out to you. I need your wisdom in my life. I need your direction in my life. I can't do this without you. I don't know how to be the best I can be without you. I don't know how to be a good father, a good husband, a good whatever without you, God. You cry out for wisdom. The Bible says that uh, there was a person in Scripture, David's son Solomon. The Bible considers him the wisest man to have ever lived. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, God comes to Solomon, many of you know this story, and he tells Solomon that he can ask him for whatever he wants and it will be given to him. What would you ask for? <laughs> Anything you want, come on, what would you ask for? You know what Solomon asked for? This is what he says. He says, I'm just a child and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Give me a discerning heart to determine what is right from wrong. It's like he went back to the garden. 
where Eve took the apple and she said, no, I'm going to discern what's right from wrong. Solomon comes back and says, God, I'm going to give it back to you. I don't know what's right from wrong. I'm just a child. I don't know what I'm doing. How many of you have ever felt unprepared for a season of life, a new role that you stepped into? Maybe, for example, I remember, I remember when I first got into ministry and I became the high school pastor at East Hill Foursquare in Gresham. And I've got all these students who are relying on me and I'm supposed to show the love of God to them and I'm supposed to speak truth to them and I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to help them walk in their faith. And it just felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders because here I am an imperfect, messed up, 20-something-year-old young guy and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I remember crying out in that season of my life, God, I have no idea why you put me in this role. I am so unprepared. Honestly, I feel that right now with you guys. God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need your wisdom. By the way, that's a really great thing to hear from your leaders. I have no idea what I'm doing. I need to rely on God. That's a great thing to hear from your leaders. I remember I felt that way when I got married to my wife. I got married and I was like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I be the husband that you've called me to be? I... I feel lost. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to love her the way that you want me to love her. God, I need your help. I felt that way when I had children. When they hand you your baby and you walk out of the hospital and you go, is there a manual that comes for this thing? Because what do I do now? Do I just take it home and put it, at, to, put it to bed? What do I, do I, how often do I have to feed it? You just have no idea what you're doing and they're just like, good luck. <laughs> have fun. I hope you slept a lot before the baby came because you're not sleeping now. I remember thinking, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I remember in that season of my life, there was a song that would just come back to my mind over and over again. It's an old song. Maybe some of you have heard this song. I'm going to try not to cry as I sing it because I almost cry every time I sing it. But it goes like this. Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you, because he wants to be like me. It was the season of my life where I just had to cry out to God, help me be a dad that you want me to be. Help me be a man that you want me to be. Help me be an individual, a follower of Jesus, that makes the most of my life I can't do that without you, God. I'm relying on you. Oh, all right. Get those tears out. Godly wisdom. Godly wisdom comes from heaven. The second thing is godly wisdom is motivated by God-centered humility. This is the picture when a husband and a wife, when friends, when a church, when they come before God and they say, God, we need what only you can give. We need you to bring us together. We need your wisdom. It's not motivated by, not motivated by self-centered ambition anymore. It's now motivated by God-centered humility. The deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom produces humility in a person. The wisdom of the world produces pride in a person. Humble yourselves before God, husbands and wives, moms and dads, everybody in this room, I would urge you to humble yourselves before God and ask God, confess to God that you can't do this without him. You need what only he can give. You need his wisdom. This is God-centered humility when we do this. And the last thing, and 
Jennifer, if you wouldn't mind coming up and just playing something as we close. The last thing is that godly wisdom results in peace and righteousness. I don't know if you caught this, but the scripture in James that we were reading together in verses 17 and 18, they are almost exactly the same as the Beatitudes that we see in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus goes and says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, all those things. Take a look at this list. Let me, let me, let me show you this. James says, wisdom is from heaven and first of all pure. The Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. James, then peace-loving, wisdom is peace-loving. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Wisdom is considerate and gentle. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, or excuse me, wisdom is submissive. Then Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James says, wisdom is full of mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. James says, wisdom produces good fruit, is impartial, sincere. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's this exact list. What's the message here? The message is that wisdom is all-encompassing. It is, it is what is most beneficial for your entire life. It's wisdom that infects every aspect of your life. And if you put your trust in God's word, your life will be blessed and you will experience freedom and joy and peace because suddenly it's not about you. You do not have to determine what is right for your life. That is the greatest tendency. That is the greatest struggle in our life. It was the first sin, the, the, the desire to determine for ourselves what is best for me. But God says, if you hand that to me and you listen to my counsel, you listen to my wisdom, my promises for your life, you will be blessed. As we leave here and as we turn on our TVs and we see what comes out of the news and we see what's happening in the White House and we see what's happening in our schools and we see what's going on across our world, the, the tendency is to begin to get angry to get bitter, to want to do something about it. And I believe that, you know, as believers of God, we're supposed to be people of action. But the first thing that we should do is we should come to God and say, God, what do you say about this? Would you give me your wisdom? Would you show me what you are doing? Because I'm excited for this. This In February, we're going to do a series in the book of Daniel. And it's going to be about thriving in Babylon. It's going to be about being a people of God in the midst of a godless society, how to thrive, how to live a life that God approves of with conviction and courage and humility, how to do that in a world, in a society that, that doesn't honor or value those things. I'm excited for it, but, but how many of you know that in, in the book of Daniel, it says that God put Nebuchadnezzar in power, that God actually gave Nebuchadnezzar uh, the ability to come and destroy Jerusalem and he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take the holy artifacts from the temple and bring them back to Babylon. God is in control of who is in control. He has all authority. We're going to talk more about this as we go through the book of Daniel. We're going to take a deep dive in this series. But the point is this, that God is sovereign. He designed the earth. He is not worried about who is in authority in our nation. He is not worried about what is happening 
around our world because he knows that if the followers of Jesus would be faithful to his call, listen to his voice, heed his wisdom, his plans for our country and for his people are going to be carried out regardless. He doesn't need anybody else, but he wants you to partner with him in his plan. And that requires us to humble ourselves and say, God, I need the wisdom that only you can give. I need the peace that only you can give. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? I want to pray for you. Would you just put out your hands like this, like you're receiving a gift from God, and we're going to ask the Lord to give us his wisdom, his discernment. Some of you maybe are making decisions right now where God is calling you to maybe a new career or a new, a new season of life to sell your house, to buy a house, to, to do something. Maybe God has is, is, is positioned you in a place, a strategic place, and you need an answer. Maybe you have children who have walked away from God and you don't know how to, how to connect with them. You don't know whether to press in and to, to kind of bug them even more with, with Scripture or to lay back and show them the love of God in that way. Maybe you're confused about the strategy. Would you ask God for wisdom? Ask Him for the strategy this morning. God, we're crying out to You just like Your Scripture says. We believe that we need what only You can give. That there is a wisdom that the world cannot offer us. We can't get it by experience, by knowledge, by application. By, by, um, by, by, by doing it ourselves, Father, but we need you and our life to show us the right way. We need you to give us the strategy. Lord, we thank you that you desire to take the pressure off of us to, get, to, to help us live a life, a full life of freedom and joy and peace. And God, we embrace your plan for our life, your wisdom for our life. Jesus, we surrender anything we've been holding back from you and we ask you, Lord, to deposit a new desire to listen to your word, a new desire for your advice, for your counsel, regardless of the hate that would come from our culture and our society. We know, God, that standing for you is not easy. That, God, we feel pressure, and maybe sometimes persecution, but oftentimes we feel pressure as followers of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us stand upon the convictions of your word. We love you, Jesus, and we praise your name. Amen. God bless you, church.